0: Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA Podcast, presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Nefer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with Dave Jansen. He's the uh, owner of Strategic Farm Marketing, based in Champaign, Illinois. And actually, Dave, I probably should say you and your wife are the owner. I mean, I, I don't want to. I want to make sure that we get the <laughs> right person um, on the listing, there, so to speak.
1: Absolutely, you've got my boss there as well, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that you know behind uh every successful man is even a more successful woman so to speak so yeah, absolutely but, but, uh, is uh in your area we're we're taping this on on May 22nd um in your area is is all the planting pretty well done other than maybe some replant?
1: Uh, that's exactly right, Paul. We we're probably 99% done with planting, if not 100% um, most everything is up out of the ground fairly well, but we did have a couple uh, relatively large rains in central Illinois and southern Illinois um, and, and really into Indiana that uh, really caused a little bit of crusting and so um, really in the last week we've had a, a numerous amount of replant claims that have come into play, but. For the most part uh our crops are are up and going pretty good maybe we'd be a little uh we wish our maybe our corn stand was maybe just a little bit better uh from that standpoint but all in all we can't complain too much at uh this time of year
0: i was gonna say you sound like a typical farmer where they want to have er- everything even better <laughs> <laughs> isn't that the truth yeah i know i know actually <clears throat> i talked to My uh, farmer in Washington state, they were getting ready to plant uh, peas and and some spring wheat and so on. And, uh, you know, it seems like every time they get out there, it'd be raining. And uh, if they finally got the crop in, but uh, uh, it'll be fine Uh, as long as we get a little bit of moisture, uh, uh, everything will turn out just fine. So so, you know, again, we always start off with sort of your background. Uh, Let's go through where you grew up, where you went to college and all that good stuff
1: great I grew up on a dairy farm in Central Minnesota uh near a little town called Buckman so it'd be a little bit uh, for those of you who are familiar with the state of Minnesota it'd be just a little bit north of of Central Minnesota like uh nearest town Saint Cloud maybe about 35 30 miles north of there or so but uh but yeah I really wasn't uh uh that interested in, uh, in taking over the dairy farm. My brothers had already decided to do that. Um, and so uh, I really enjoyed a lot of my egg classes and, and, and FFA as well. And um, so I r- really decided to wanted to become uh, just like my egg teacher and wanted to become uh, someone that t- taught agriculture. So I've always been a big supporter of FFA and you know, that's the first thing that put me on a college campus and got me to explore more jobs in, in agriculture and uh, ultimately ended up going to the University of Minnesota, uh, majored in ag in education, like I was saying, um, and to gain interview experience, I interviewed with uh, Minnesota company Cargill and, and uh, they offered me a job as a grain buyer and uh, didn't know much about it at the time and I decided to take it. So um, it was just a wonderful uh, uh, turn of events in my life anyway. um, Well, and I think even more importantly, Dave, I think if I remember right, uh, that's where you met your wife, right? Exactly. Um, She was an egg education major as well as well, too. And um, we were both uh, thinking that maybe we would uh, find a teaching job somewhere and and uh, job came up with Cargill, and so I decided to take it, and she followed me there. So. And so, so uh, where
0: where did you start out with Cargill?
1: Well, I they started out in um, in Seaford, Delaware, um, which is uh, uh, it's amazing that little town or that little area of Delaware is almost like central Illinois, and um, that uh, a lot of flat uh, farm ground a tremendous amount of farm ground tremendous amount of chickens anyway and my wife actually taught agriculture there in um, in Delaware as well too Um, but you know at at that facility it was a basically a uh, barge loading facility Um, we would uh, ship grain down to Norfolk Virginia uh, for export and soybeans had a processing facility there and so after a couple of years I actually moved to Norfolk Virginia there and uh, That was quite um, an interesting experience being part of the export system and soybean processing situations as well, too, so that worked out pretty well. And then after a couple of years, they moved me back to Toledo, Ohio, um, where they were delivery house for the Board of Trade and got experience with those uh, with that type of uh, grain experience. Um, And also we could uh, load export business out of the lakes and 100 car unit trains in the southeast. So it gives me a pretty uh, well-rounded education into the grain industry in in that five-year time period I was with Cargill.
0: And so you were there, like you had mentioned, with Cargill for five
1: years. And then how did you end up leaving uh, Cargill? As a matter of fact, one of my clients um, that I would buy grain from had a farm market advisor that was in Champaign, Illinois, and and uh, in order to buy grain from him, I, I was uh, speaking to him quite a bit, and he was telling me one day that um, you know that he was uh, asking me if I was uh, knew of anybody that's interested in being a broker for them, and and I I told my you know I might be interested in kicking the tires a little bit and. At that point in time, was a two-person office, and and we got talking a little bit, and he told me he was looking at retiring in three years, and I decided to make the move, and we worked together for two and a half years, and starting in 1993, and then I took over the company in 1996. So, and at that time, it was primarily just a grain marketing
0: company. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we really only handled uh, commodity brokerage and farm market advising, but in 1999, uh, I brought the company into crop insurance because I recognized how similar crop insurance is to some aspects of commodity brokerage um, and some of the products that elevators offer and and those type of things. And uh, you know, today, I mean, we still do commodity brokerage and farm market advising, but today we'd be one of the largest crop insurance uh, agencies in the Midwest with about 40 agents that do business in 12 Midwestern states from, or from Missouri to Ohio and Minnesota down to Texas. But probably the biggest thing that I'm proud of is um, we, that we got to our size not by acquiring other agencies, but by ag- organic growth, uh, just one customer at a time. Yeah, and I, I think
0: that is certainly some of the best growth. Uh, you know, my previous life, many, many years ago, uh, a couple of my friends, we started a CPA firm in Central Oregon, and we bought a couple of little smaller firms and put them together. And it's just, it's just sort of painful, all that integration and getting it to work right. You don't know where the skeletons are in the closet, so to speak. And I think if you can just grow it, organically it's it's the best type of growth.
1: Oh absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree.
0: So you have a wide range of of um, clientele that you service there and and the one thing I've really have noticed is you know a a farmer in let's say Champaign, Illinois, is much easier for that farmer to take advantage of 85% RP. then let's say a farmer in northern Minnesota or Wisconsin or down in Texas, where that cost of eighty-five percent
1: is so high, is that what you typically see in in your client mix too? Oh, absolutely, Paul. It's um, it's definitely not one size fits all. Um, when you look at the heart of the of the I states. Uh, in some cases it's really tough to get the, the rate low enough, right? So um, in a lot of cases, maybe the price is our biggest peril as opposed to uh, a crop problem. But if you get into you know, Southern Illinois or um, into Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Central Minnesota, uh, Central Wisconsin, some of those areas, uh, y- you know, having a zero yield is a real possibility. Um, or a significant crop loss is a big uh, possibility. And so that's why some of the rates in some of those other areas um, tend to be three to four times how much they are um, in central illinois. So um so it it is a differently um, you know when it comes to farm bill type things, that it, um, it it's interesting to have the perspective of what these rates, it, etc mean to a lot of different people because ultimately this crop insurance program should be paying back about 100 percent um over time and and um you know and that can be different things to different people right so yeah yeah
0: and and right now you know our spring discovery price you know on on corn was almost six dollars Uh, soybeans, what was it? Uh, I I always know corn better than I know soybeans. Was it close to 14? Was it somewhere in there? Yeah, just a
1: little bit less than that. That's what Uh, I was thinking. I have to think myself. I think it was like 1387, I believe, the number, but just under 14. And
0: now we're looking at pricing that if you were at 85% coverage on corn or on soybeans, the price on the board, at least right now, is actually either at that number or lower than that number. So from a marketing standpoint, what are some of the ideas that that you guys are looking at to, to help farmers manage that
1: risk? Well, as the market drops, Paul, we've got other things to consider. For example, in the heart of, let's say, Illinois, for example, we might have a 225 APH. And if you took 85% RP, you know that will give you like 191 bushel yield guarantee and also at that 591 a revenue guarantee of 1130 dollars an acre which you know is a pretty good number but you know if the corn price hits 475 let's say and i, I know that we're about uh, you know a little bit more than 20 cents above that right now but let's just say we get down to that level um, which is kind of level where we think that's kind of the bottom, maybe the lower end of expectations that we would expect to be at our lows. But you know that 85% policy would give us a trigger of about 230, um, 238 bushels an acre. And for those farmers that took, let's say, 95% ECO or enhanced coverage option, it's a county-based product. But you know that revenue guarantee, even on a countywide basis, would be like twelve hundred and forty-six dollars an acre, or you know, a a trigger of basically two hundred and sixty-two bushel an acre. If if you hit the four seventy-five, so so when you have these guarantees <clears throat> that you might think might be in the hundred or one hundred and fifty dollars an acre uh, area, and you're kind of getting to the bottom end of the range, is what you would expect to see. It maybe makes sense to buy the board or buy a call spread or maybe even sell puts to lock up a portion of those expected claims. So we mock up a lot of those strategies to our farmers to 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 so we can kind of see what that P&L would look like um, and to just keep an eye on that. So these might be strategies you might execute, but you want to have a plan in place anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the key is, uh, you know, if you don't do anything over time, you either are going to lose some working capital, or if you got so much working capital, you don't care. That's that's not the typical farmer that we deal with.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Okay, so um, you know, as, as far as the new farm bill coming up, uh, what are some of the ideas or some of the key things you'd like to see that that farm bill have in place?
1: Well, Paul, one of the things is we're. I've been spending a lot of time. Um, uh, e- both in DC and visiting with some of our uh, lawmakers who are our decision makers on the Farm Bill, and and we're just you know I think everybody agrees that they want to strengthen the the uh, the safety net for the farmer, strengthen the crop insurance safety net. But the the real question is 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 how do you do that, right? And how and based upon we would expect to be a limited amount of funds available you know what type of programs does it make sense and 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 what does not and so I was doing some studies that I've been floating across um, some of our people in Washington and actually um, you and I are on a on a tax force for um, Colin Peterson's group the Midwest Council on Agriculture and we did some mock-ups and just looking at for example ECO that's a county-based product that goes from 86 to 95 percent well that product ends up being so expensive in a lot of cases and it makes it really difficult for people to take that unless you're in some of the 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 cheapest levels of uh, or the lowest rates of crop insurance but if you raise those subsidies those cost share subsidies from a 44 to let's say a 65 percent i think that would uh i think that's a, a program that could be relatively cheap and affordable. Um, And you might see a whole host of different private products that being developed from that, that could potentially protect yourself individually, even though that would be on a a countywide basis. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there talking about wanting to raise reference prices. And, you know, at first glance, it really seems like that would be a good thing to do. But, you know, a move from 370 to let's say $4 on corn on that reference price, uh, for, for the PLC side of things, um, you know, they're talking CBO, t- uh, uh, congressional budget office would score that at spending almost 22 or 26 billion on that. Yeah. And so in that situation, if the market stays above that, you're really not getting anything for your money. And so one of my thought processes was, was if we could take that money and maybe apply it to a couple of different things, one might be the ECO, Another might be to take um, 80% crop insurance, it has a cost share subsidy of 68% on enterprise units. But if you go to the 85% level, it's 53. So my thought process was, is what would it look like if we carried that same um, cost share subsidy from the 80% but moved it to 85? Um, It might be spending a little bit more money on those type of programs, but um, I think you could get in a situation where it would make the 85% level more affordable.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, speaking of, uh, of ECO, we also have the SEO, which the issue with that is in order to be take advantage of SEO, you know, you have to file or you have to sign up for PLC at the local FSA office, and you got some d- difficulties with timing on that go through some of the issues that you see in in your business dealing with seo options
1: well one of the things is a lot of these fsa offices uh, want to be able to get these farmers moving because we all know what happens with the, a lot of the farm community. If you have a deadline date, that means probably seventy-five percent of the people are going to come in, in the last uh, last fourteen days, probably. Yeah. Um, and so they try to get a good get a head start on these ARC and PLC decisions early on. Well, the problem is from a crop insurance standpoint, which we also have a deadline of March fifteenth. A lot of these farmers, especially, let's say, if you have a sharecropping situation. The landlord might sign it up for uh, one crop, but the farmer needs to be have it signed up for another um, on that. Because on your crop insurance, SEO has been really popular, especially in the heart of the Midwest and in other areas where crop insurance are really, really uh, uh, extremely expensive because the cost share subsidy in SEO is 65% versus and that'll give you an 86% coverage. Um, versus 85 percent is sitting at 53. So, in a lot of cases, there I would say here in in Illinois, farmers taking SCO, for example, in in some levels, uh, you could be saving up to you know 10, 11 dollars an acre. Uh, as well as some people, maybe in in areas where crop insurance is really expensive, might be saving upwards of 20 to to 30 dollars an acre. And so I, I really love that tool and tool shed. It's not for everybody, but we got to break this tie between ARC and PLC and, and choosing SEO, because as we get going forward here, this ARC is going to be more and more important for farmers to take ARC. This yep. last year, the ARC guarantee was 398, but next year we'd expect that number to be moving up to uh, about a 454 level, if I remember correctly. And then um, uh, and then we're going to be probably pushing that number up into probably over five and a quarter. So as we go forward, farmers are going to have to basically take ARC, um, uh, ARC County uh, across the board or some form of ARC um and, and that basically is going to close out any opportunity at SCo, which for a lot of farmers that has the fact of really raising crop insurance prices so i've been trying to be able to get that job done i don't know how successful we'll be in that but i think it's definitely an issue because it's in a lot of times the number of calls we have to make to fsa offices to make sure the farmers on the right program. I think it's a waste of time for the FSA offices. It's a waste of time for us. It's a waste of time for the farmer. There's a way that we could streamline this process I think would be really helpful.
0: Well, like you say, uh, the ARC uh, or the Olympic average price is definitely going to go up no matter what over the next couple of years. Now, the reference price for PLC may go up a little bit. I mean, there is the in the 2018 farm bill, it could go up by 15%. I think corn's got a chance to go up. I don't know if it'll go up the full 15, but it could if pricing stays up pretty good. So we'll see what happens there. But again, that means it'll be $4, but your ARC price will still be like you say, in the mid five. So uh, people are still gonna sign up for ARC versus PLC at that point in time. Oh,
1: absolutely. That's what it's looking like to me.
0: Now, one of the other options that was more in the I states, uh, some of the surrounding states is margin protection, which I actually used two years ago while on the 22 crop for my Missouri ground and for my Iowa ground. Now, luckily, my Iowa ground, we had record yields on that ground. But on my Missouri, we certainly did not have record yields. You know, we had over 100 degrees for I think about uh, a month during pollination and didn't couldn't get enough water on it. Um, Do you see that being expanded
1: and is there some changes you think might be coming in that on on that particular product? Well, first of all, margin was predominantly in the Midwest um, and now it's pretty much expanded to to most all of the growing areas um the i i know they're also working on another program that's kind of like an individual margin protection it has not been released yet i'm not sure if it if it will be but i know that they're working on it um in that case you would be able to kind of we from what we would understand is just like you're taking your rp decision in february you would be making an individual decision in um in september for example by september 30th um and then maybe we could be locking up input cost um that those early times as well too so um there's some merit in some of those programs it might be just a little bit more expensive than if you buy it in uh if you wait and buy it in february just because your your um those markets are closer to the ultimate harvest time but boy there's some time periods when we've got a really good price in september for new crop corn and yeah. um, you know, even like you look at this last year where we were starting what we were like at six ten, and, um, and if the margins are there, it definitely may make sense in doing some kind of programs like that. And so, um, so we're really uh, uh, um, we're really hopeful that they'll continue to keep on expanding that type of program because it just adds more tools in the tool shed. Now coming up this next year, I don't know if commodity prices stay where they're at right now today. I just don't know if margin gets sold as much as it does maybe in the past, yeah. um, but uh, but it's definitely a tool that we want to use in the in the uh, in the shed at at various times of the year. Okay,
0: well um, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back and we'll go through some of the questions I always try to ask our uh, uh, participants. Uh-huh.
1: How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? 10 years? Top producers like Hans Lanchi a blue Diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know Rabo finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Rabo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, RoboAgger Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgger Finance.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Meefer, for your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Dave Jansen from Strategic Farm Marketing based in Champaign, Illinois. So, um, Dave, you know, just like anything else, you typically have at least one or two mentors uh, that help you in your career.
1: Who would you say your mentor was? I have to say it's my wife, Deb. She's been a great business partner, and uh, pretty much runs the day-to-day operations of her company, especially when I'm on the road a lot. Um, She's smart, puts others' needs ahead of her own, and probably one of the most uh, positive and caring uh, uh, people you'll ever meet. So So really what you're
0: saying, I should have done this podcast with her, not you. Is that what you're saying?
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. She would be a good one as well.
0: (laughs) I I may do that because, you know, it's always... I, I think doesn't the study show that women are better marketers than men when it comes to farm marketing?
1: Well, they they always can a lot of times uh, point out different things that you maybe should have done, uh, but maybe <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> well, I, I think all the husbands out there know that's the correct answer. So, uh, but, uh, but
0: uh, and then, uh, do you have any time for some hobbies?
1: Oh, uh, uh, Paul, yeah, we love to travel. Um, I know when my daughter was in fifth grade, they learned the uh, state song, which helps them remember all the the state names. And uh, uh, my daughter asked how many states that she had been uh, in at that time, and I think it was about a dozen or so. And my wife and I made the goal to uh, get all of our kids in 50 states before they graduate high school. Well, we didn't make that goal, but we were able to get them there all before they graduated college. So uh, that was just a fun experience of uh, of travel with them and uh, a lot of great memories. But we're also a big Minnesota Vikings fan, an Illinois sports fan, so uh, we try to make as get as many games as we can as well. Well, you know, on the on the states, I'm
0: I'm at 47 right now, and the AICPA AG conference is in Boston in August of this year. And my last three states are Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. So I'm going to rent a car. I'm going to drive through those three states just to get all 50 states off my list. <laughs> that
1: would be a great idea. You can sure do it up there.
0: Yeah, the, the, those states, I think, uh, what, within about 100 miles round trip, you could probably at least touch all three of those states.
1: So,
0: uh, <laughs> I remember Absolutely. about... I remember about, oh, this is probably 10 or 12 years ago. My wife and I had taken a cruise out of New Orleans. And when we got back, we had about eight hours before the flight took off. And I hadn't gotten to Mississippi yet. So I told my wife, hey, we're going to rent a car. We drove one mile into Mississippi. They had a welcome center. I went in there. I, I grabbed a couple of brochures, turned around and drove back to the airport so I could get that one off my list. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so uh,
0: then uh, what 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 keeps you up at night?
1: Well in a Paul in a tough year the crop insurance agent is always the last line of defense and so we uh, we hope that we've dotted every I crossed every T and the farmer has given us all the correct information so claims go smoothly and a farmer is audit proof and the habit we triple check our work and and question everything that doesn't look right to avoid any errors. But uh, it, it just always gives you a little anxiety anytime you know it's going to be a big claim, and and um, just making sure that you've done everything uh, 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 that you're meant to do. So um, I know farmers trust us with uh, that we know what we're doing, and uh, I do take it personal anytime something doesn't go exactly right. So.
0: And before I ask my last question, I'm just going to bring up last Friday on May 19th. You know, FSA or USDA announced that for 2022, they're going to do another ERP. They've set aside about 3.7 billion for that. Now it looks like it's sort of a combination of what I call Phase One and Phase Two. You know, if if they took advantage of of crop insurance. They're gonna get the automatic uh, thing in the mail that says, okay, here's your, here's your application, please sign it, bring it back to the FSA office. However, if they didn't take advantage of it, then they're stuck with doing you know allowable gross revenue. And I think you know by now how much I really enjoy trying to calculate allowable gross revenue for our farmers. W- what has been your experience dealing with phase one and phase two in your area?
1: Wow, I'll tell you. I, I'm going to say all farm programs in general. Um, I felt like we should have had a check coming from USDA because we've really had a, had to really sit down with a lot of people and explain who qualifies for what and and those type of things. And uh, um, and Paul, I, I had a conversation this morning with uh, uh, some of our Washington uh, colleagues, and I was trying to figure out if if uh, you know, if you had a crop insurance claim in 22, there's a lot of rough areas, etc. Um, how was that going to uh was it gonna work? I mean, if you had 80 percent or higher insurance, would they move us to 95 again? Um, and last time they paid us 80 percent of the difference. They were even generous enough to refund some of the crop insurance premiums, but um, we don't know for sure how that program's gonna gonna um gonna play out, but we can pretty much be sure that um, that when we take a look at the refunding of crop insurance premiums, we would not expect that to happen this time around. And last time they paid up like 80% of that difference that um, based upon the level that was covered versus the level of insurance you had. Um, We think that number is going to go down at this point in time is what the what the rumor mill is is telling us, but You know, time will tell, nothing's been announced yet, but that's what we would expect to happen.
0: Well, and I think the other thing that we're finding out too, and and this is me using my crystal ball, which may be pretty cloudy, uh, my feeling, and I think you echo that in your area or, or, or your footprint, there really has not been very many signups for ERP phase two and you know they had budgeted about 1.5 billion to be paid out well right now i think the latest number i saw about a week ago is they've had less than 300 farmers sign up now you know the deadline's coming up and as you know everybody will sign up at the end of the deadline but let's make let's say that's 5000 people at you know 100,000 that still doesn't get you up to uh the budgeted amount so I have a feeling now I may be wrong but I have a feeling that they may uh top up that phase one payment and there might some additional monies coming to those
1: farmers don't know but that's sort of the feeling I'm getting right now yeah that's why it sounded Paul because I was kind of curious to see if they would go ahead and some people that were had extenuating circumstances whether they would find a way to get those paid but it doesn't sound like kind of looks like those who got got paid before would maybe be getting an additional payment. Is the way I read it. Yeah.
0: And, and to me, the additional or the issue, the issue I have with allowable gross revenue is that they base it on the tax return. Well, you know, David, and you and I know that when a farmer has a good year, they're going to defer income into the following year. And then if they have a bad year, they're going to take some of that income into the bad year. So it really the tax return really doesn't tell you whether they made money or didn't make money. It's just a a moment in time how they decide to report that income. So you know, in the those years where farmers have bad years, their tax return maybe doesn't even reflect that. So I, that's some of the issues I have with this whole idea of allowable gross revenue based on a tax return. And,
1: and it looks like there's going to be additional um, Additional money available uh, uh, again on on uh, the area where it's socially disadvantaged, et cetera. Um, it, it, it appeared to me that that was uh, going to be the case again, anyway.
0: Yeah, I think they'll they'll
1: continue.
0: So, like on um, on PARP as an example, if you're socially disadvantaged, including a woman, any woman qualifies under that definition you get it at the 90% level, or you only need a 10% reduction in uh, allowable gross revenues, whereas all other farmers have to have at least a 20% reduction to qualify. So yeah, I'm guessing they'll continue to to apply that to uh, 2022 ERP. So we'll see. Like you say, they haven't come out with any of the details yet. They just announced the program, and it looks like it might be another month or two before they really get everything out to but you know, maybe they'll surprise us.
1: Yep, well, we'll be waiting for waiting for the information as we go here. Uh, again, my last
0: question I always like to ask is, uh, what is your definition of success in farming?
1: Well, for me, I think farming is a way of life, or or basically lifestyle, if you will, and. I love it when we get to see the you get to help the next generation get up to speed and eventually take over the operation and and um, you know you see so many different farming operations, been family for so many years and and um i I, I just love bringing the next generation along and and uh, and just seeing the pride in everybody's face of seeing that. Um, uh, that farming operation moved from one generation to the next and and uh that's that's the definition to me i i totally agree so uh uh again dave uh
0: thanks for taking time out of your out of your busy schedule for for the people that are listening to this this is actually the third taping that dave and i did Uh, i'll be the first to admit that on the first taping i forgot to record it on the second taping we had technical difficulties and as far as I can tell on this one, Dave, we've had no technical difficulties, so I think we're going to be okay. Oh, wonderful. You know, again, Dave, thanks a lot. And this is the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Paul Nefer, or excuse me, by Top Producer. This is Paul Neefer, your host,
1: signing off.